We should pray before I preach because uh, I need it. Father God, please use me today. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Write your word on our hearts and speak to us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you might have noticed that at the beginning of the service that I started to leave the stage a little early. Olivia reminded me to stay up here and read the scriptures with you. And, you know, every once in a while mistakes are made. Uh, I've done a few weddings in 30 years, and I hate to have to confess it, but yeah, every once in a while I'm, I've made mistakes during weddings. Uh, they're, they're funny to me. I don't know if the brides ever forgave me, but I, <laughs> I remember doing a wedding for... Diana's cousin married my, my best bud growing up, Rich and Karen Wood, and they were our maid of honor and best man at our wedding. That's how they met. Well, it came time for their wedding, and as we're up front, that one was classic, because you, you get a picture sometimes of what's going on in the family life, because her little brother, Johnny, was given the chore of reading Scripture during the wedding. They thought, what do we have Johnny do? Let's have him read Scripture. So Johnny's at this little microphone up here, like we're all back over there, and he starts reading out of Genesis, and God created man and said that was good. That was about all the Scripture we heard from him, because after that he says, and God created woman, and that was not good. And we're thinking, oh boy, I wonder what his mom did to him this morning. So, <laughs> and so we all looked at each other like, who's going to get Johnny? And so his dad went and got him. But that's not the end of it because I, I was, though I was a pastor, this was in a church in Oregon, and when I'd met with the pastor, I was going to do the vows. The pastor said, you read the vows exactly the way they're printed. Do you understand me? I said, sure, why not? Yeah. So I'm doing the vows, you know, we, you know Rich, will you take Karen to be your lawfully wedded wife and those type of things? Well, Karen, good news, was really on it because when I was reading the vows, I said, and Karen, will you take Rich to be your lawfully wedded wife? And Karen goes, I take Rich to be my lawfully wedded husband. And I was like, oh, goodness gracious, I tell you. You know, I have learned over time that there are certain things you don't do. At like outdoor weddings, no unity candles. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> I've, I've seen them blow out. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things that people want to do during weddings. And I've, we've done some fun things. I've gotten a chance to be a part of all kinds of traditions, different backgrounds on how you do weddings and things like that. But I'm just telling you, funny things happen. But there's a wedding coming which will be done right, partly because I won't be officiating, right? And <laughs> you know what I tell brides? I say, you know, something will probably go wrong during your wedding, and that's going to make it your wedding. But there's a wedding coming. There's an amazing wedding coming. And like I said, it's not going to go wrong. It's going to be amazing. And it's because of who the bridegroom is and where it's going to take place. I want to take you into John chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. It says, to this John, John the Baptist, replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. So let me take you into verse 28. Right about the middle of that one, John the Baptist said, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. We know that 
Part of John's mission as a prophet of God was to make paths straight. He was baptizing the baptism of repentance so people would begin to repent, to get ready for the Messiah to show up. And so he's going to acknowledge certain things about who Jesus is as he's doing his ministry, as a prophet. Some see him as the last of the Old Testament prophets, maybe the first of the New Testament prophets, but he's, he's there to proclaim who Jesus is And he knew he was. One of the things he said about Jesus was that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's going to point at Jesus and say, that is the Lamb of God. But then he made another statement of who Jesus is found in verse 29. He said, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. John identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. Again, like like John said, I'm not the Messiah. There's only one Messiah. And he says, "I'm, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. Because at the time, people were his disciples were seeing people following Jesus. And but isn't it interesting that he would he would want to go after this and identify Jesus as the bridegroom and somehow point this out. Because it can seem obscure. It can seem like, what's the big deal with that? So, So what if he's the bridegroom? But there's a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. When you study through the scriptures and you're looking for this theme, you'll find it fully through the scriptures. And that is the bridegroom, the bride, and they come together into a, a wedding. Genesis 2 starts with, gives us what? The beginning of marriage. That's where God says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Of course, that was about Adam and Eve. But Adam was the first Adam. Jesus is the second or last Adam. And then, at the other end of the Bible is Revelation 21, 1 through 3. It says, then I saw, this is John's vision, very end of the book of Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. Book of Revelation identifies that once again, there's a bride. The new Jerusalem. The people of God. That identifies us. And in between, between Genesis 2 and Revelation 21, you you would study the book of Song of Solomon. Yes, Song of Solomon is a letter from Solomon to the Shulamite, but I also believe Song of Solomon is a letter of Christ to the church. Sometime if you can get her to do it, people. Get Diana to teach on the Song of Solomon. It's one of my favorite teachings she does. The things she shared with me. It is so rich of the things you learn about Song of Solomon and this relationship between Jesus and the church. There's also the book of Hosea. What is Hosea all about? God calls the prophet Hosea saying, I want you to go marry a harlot. Why? What's the whole picture? And he has to go marry Gomer. 
And she's going to be unfaithful to him. And what's the message to us in that prophet's writings? It's that God's own people have been unfaithful to him. He sees it as he's in a relationship with them, a marriage relationship with them, and they're unfaithful to him. It's one of God's claims against Israel. So you see these themes running through the scripture, and then you see it in Jesus' ministry. Where did Jesus' first miracle take place? John chapter 4, wedding of Cana. It's the water into wine, which is an amazing miracle in and of itself of taking water, turning into wine, but then also the significance. We'll preach through it and teach through it sometime. But don't miss that, yes, his first miracle takes place at the wedding of Cana. And then during his last teaching, Matthew chapter 25, he's also going to talk about the wedding. It's the ten virgins, the five foolish, the five wise, right? About having oil ready for when the bridegroom arrives. Right at his last teaching, just before he's going to get arrested, he touches on a number of topics, but one is be ready. Have oil for your lamp. You don't know when it's going to happen, but whenever he shows up, you've got to be ready for the bridegroom to arrive, right? And that's the, that's the point. The, the oil, the Holy Spirit. That's why five say to the foolish, we can't, we can't give you our oil. You're going to have to go get your own. Five are ready for when the bridegroom arrives. So Jesus is saying, be ready for the bridegroom just before he's going to be crucified. Even Paul's in on all this. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul wrote the church in Corinth, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul wrote this to the, the Christians, to the church of Corinth saying, I've got to present you as a virgin, to a pure virgin, to the bridegroom. The Apostle Paul understood this whole theme that was going on through the Scriptures. Like I said, it's this amazing theme running through the Scriptures. You can find it in many of the different books as you read through and study what God is talking about here. Because it's all going to consummate. It's all going to come to an end at the end of time for us when we show up to a wedding. But a good picture of the bridegroom as a picture of Christ. As you know, there's things in the scriptures where there's types and kinds. And there's types of who Jesus Christ is going to be. Think about Moses. Moses is the prophet, right? When he says in, in Deuteronomy 18, there is a prophet coming. Well, it's a prophet like Moses. There's all these types and kinds. The bronze snake was just a, a figure or, or a, a statement about who Jesus is up upon the cross. Jacob, when he has his dream of, of the staircase or the ladder, it's about Jesus. And Jesus acknowledges that in the Gospels, that he is that staircase. And so you get to an individual named Isaac. Have you ever noticed, have you ever wondered, why is it you get all of this writing about Abraham, you get all this writing about Jacob, and you get this like small portion on Isaac. Isaac's a blast. And think about what his name means. It means laughter or makes me laugh. I think Isaac's probably one of God's favorite people in the scriptures, and he's a type and kind of Jesus. Why? He's the promised son. Remember, he's the son that God promised to Abraham. In your old age, I'll give you a son. And that's why Abraham laughed, right? 
He's filled with the joy of the Lord. Goes face down on the ground. And then Sarah laughs, but not a good laugh. Like, yeah, right, God. And that's what you remember, Tree of Mamre. And it's an appearance of Jesus. So when he says, why are you laughing? She goes, I didn't laugh. He goes, oh, no, actually you did. Don't tell God that you didn't do something when he says you did it. It doesn't go well. But then later she's going to name her son makes me laugh. In other words, laughter, this joy that enters her heart. But there's a picture of Jesus in his life because it's not only his birth. It's also found, Genesis 22, when God tests Abraham. Remember it says, and God tested Abraham in this. He said, take your son and go and sacrifice him. Totally a picture of Jesus. And he has to take him up onto the mount, Mount Moriah, and there he's supposed to sacrifice his son, but it was never God's intention. It tells you in verse 1, this is a test. And then God provides. That's where we get the, the name, the compound Hebrew name that God is the God who provides for us. But he's going to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, which is going to become Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Right in the area where the promised one will be crucified. But let's get into the bridegroom, though. So how is it that you see the bridegroom in the life of Isaac? Well, at one point in time, Isaac, uh, Abraham realizes his son Isaac needs a wife. And so what does he do? He calls in his number one servant. Now, when you're interpreting dreams, when you're seeing how God speaks to people, many times there will be someone in a dream who is nameless or faceless, represents the Holy Spirit many times. And so Abraham calls his number one servant to him. Now we would all go, well, that's Eliezer. But the scriptures don't tell you it's Eliezer. And then he has to come in. He says, I want you to go and find a bride for my son. You have to go back to my people. I want you to take all of my riches with me and now put your hand underneath my right thigh and swear to me. Weirdest swearing in ever. But it's okay. There's meaning to it. I won't go into it right now. Then he's going to say, now go. And so the number one servant has to go back to the land that Abraham came from, back to Ur of the Chaldeans. Then he's going to go find his son. If you remember, he gets back there and he says to the Lord, Lord, let the woman be the one not only who offers me water, but offers water for the camel. So he says, I want a divine appointment here, God. I want to know who she is clearly. And so what happens? Rebecca comes out and says, here, have water and I'll water your camels. Go back and study that sometime. That's not here and she pours a couple of you know, gallons of water out. That is like an all-day task to water those camels after a journey. And then he's going to bring her back. And she, he brings her back and then Isaac sees her. You see, this is symbolic of what God's been doing. It's a picture of what God's been doing in world history. Do you understand that throughout world history, God has been assembling a bride for his son? That's what he's been up to. That's why it's a theme running through the scriptures. This whole thing about the bride. It's God is putting together a bride for his son. A people for his son. It's amazing what God has done. You wonder what the Holy Spirit's doing right now? When the Holy Spirit is saving people, when the Holy Spirit is seeking after people, he's calling people to become part of the bride. He's calling them in, getting them ready for this fellowship. That's why the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I have betrothed you. It's again the Spirit of God calling people in to become part of the bride. It's it's this, in case you've ever thought, well, is he just out there just sort of saving people? Well, it looks like that, but actually he's up to something. 
You can even see this bridegroom, uh, this theme running through Jesus' ministry. Not only does the, the John the Baptist, the prophet of God, identify him as being the bridegroom, but then you watch Jesus' ministry because if you look at the betrothal practice of that time, the betrothal practice was this. A young man might see a young woman and say, wow, that, that, that's got to be the one for me. He's going to go tell his father, I think I, found, I think I found the one. And so the father is going to make an arrangement to meet with the other family and arrange for this, this wedding. You know, it's not just like today where, you know, I fell in love and got down on one knee and asked her to marry me and, I'll, you know, I'll go tell my parents. There was arrangements that had to be made. The father has to meet with their family. If she's agreeable to this and the family's agreeable to it, then there's a ceremony that has to take place. They're brought together and the, this groom, this possible betrothed groom, is going to have a, a chalice of wine or a glass of wine. He's going to offer it to her saying, this is my lifeblood if you drink of it. We're betrothed. If she drinks that cup, it is settled. She is betrothed to him. How many of you right now are going, huh, I wonder if that's like communion? <laughs> yes. It's exactly like communion because what's at the heart of a marriage relationship is a covenant. At the very heart, you know, when you, when you go to a wedding, yeah, it's great to have all the trappings, you know, music and, which some of the music's glorious. It's fabulous. But there's music and there's hopefully a really short sermon. I, I had to learn that one, people. If I ever do a wedding, I'm not giving you an hour sermon. You get like 10, 20 minutes, probably 15 less, right? Keep it short. No, you know what I found out? In case you want to know why, you should be thanking God for Diana. Diana's the one said, Tom. Do you remember what your uncle preached when we got married? I said, no. She goes, right. Get the point. Nobody remembers what the pastor preaches at a wedding. <laughs> I mean, have you ever seen the pastor that thinks the whole thing's about him giving a wedding sermon? It's hilarious. But <laughs> I, I used to get caught up into it. Now I'm like, let's just, you know, let's get the basics out there. Let's get on with this thing. Because why? What is, what is the most important thing that happens at that wedding? Covenant vows are taken. A covenant relationship is established between a husband and a wife. That's what's going on. You're in a worship context, and this covenant is made. So yes, that's why covenant theology is so important to us. And the next time you take communion, realize when you drink that cup, think about this. Lord, I recognize that I'm betrothed to you. When Jesus is serving the Passover... And his disciples are there, his, and especially the apostles. And he says, he takes the third cup, the cup of redemption, and says, take and drink. This is the new covenant in my blood. I think those disciples understood the multifaceted nature of taking communion or the, what Jesus was establishing. I think they understood. If they drink that cup, they are now betrothed to Jesus. They are promised to him. Then the next step is, after drinking that cup, and she's now betrothed, a, a young groom, a young betrothed guy is going to say, all right, I've got to go with my father and prepare. He had to go home to his father's home, and his dad would help him prepare a place for them to live. And then he would make a promise to her saying, I won't drink of the vine until I'm with you, until I come back for you. Have you ever read in the scriptures where Jesus makes that promise, I go to, I go to prepare a place for you and I will not drink of the vine? Have you ever thought... Well, what's the deal with this? You won't, I don't care if you drink or not in heaven. That's up to you, you know. 
Jesus isn't just making a comment. He's actually making a a bridegroom promise to the church. I am going home. What has Jesus been doing for 2,000 years? Preparing a place for us, right? He and the Father are preparing a place for you. And he made a promise to you. I won't touch the vine until I come back for you. When next time you read that, understand that's a bridegroom promise that Jesus made to all of us. Saying, I won't drink of the vine. I won't have wine. I won't touch it. And then, so he goes and he prepares his house. And then comes the time when it's all ready to go. When everything's ready for him to come get the bride. Then comes the procession. Then you hit it where they're supposed to have the torches. They're all supposed to be ready. And the bridegroom shows up. They have a party. And then he's going to take her home. Next time you read the scriptures, when you're in the Gospels, pay attention to the bridegroom nature of who Jesus Christ is. Because it's not just, the, just John the Baptist saying, see, he's a bridegroom, isn't that neat? I just gave him another title. You see these things in his ministry. You see these divine appointments for him. You see where the Spirit of God has set it up. I mean, when I talk about divine appointments, I was just talking with a brother recently. We were just kind of, you know, the whole thing. Remember when Jesus shows up at the pool and the, the guy can't walk? And Jesus says, you want to get healed? I mean, it's a total divine appointment, right? And the guy goes, well, yeah, I want to walk, but I, you know, when the angel comes to serve the water, I can't get in, and everybody else gets in, which tells you everybody's right there, right? And Jesus heals him. And then Jesus leaves. It's like, uh, did you forget that there's like, like, like a whole bunch of other people around that water, probably, and you healed one guy and you left? It was a divine appointment. It was for that one guy. Jesus was seeking him out. And then it's to minister to us as we read it. So it's this amazing theme running through the scriptures, this, this bridegroom theme running through. And like I said, it culminates back in Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. This place goes away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So that's great. But why is it important to focus on Jesus as the bridegroom? Great. So there's this this wedding, this marriage motif, this theme running through Scripture. It's running through Jesus' ministry. But why is this important to us? Because it's all about a passionate relationship. God is passionately in love with you. He doesn't just, if you ever sit there and you go, okay, yeah, John 3 16, for God so loved the world, He gave His love. God is passionately in love with you. We tend to sit there and go, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, God's like up in heaven. Does He really pay attention? Yes, He loves you. One of the most important prophetic words you can ever receive from the living God through one of his prophetic people or just through prophetic gifting is that he loves you. And do you know how many people need to hear how much God loves them? That's why I'm going to preach it over and over again that God loves you. Hear this. He loves you. He's passionately in love with you. Living God does not send his son to die on this planet. Why? I mean, why not just destroy the whole thing, start over? Because he loves you. If he destroys the whole thing, you're not here. None of us. We cease to exist and he didn't want you to cease. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants everything about you. Do you love him? God requires love back. 
Think about the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you just say, okay, yeah, love the Lord your God. No, love him. Love him with all your heart. Love him with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Fall in love with God. And if you're sitting there going, I, I guess I just don't feel that passion. Well then, Holy Spirit, will you anoint my brothers and sisters right now with a holy passion for you that they will fall in love with you. Worship's not about coming into this room just to sing some songs and to have a fun time together. It's about passionately loving God. That's why every once in a while I'll say it right now. One of the most important things you can do during worship is sometime during your worship is to just quietly in your heart or out loud during the music is to say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. What drives us in serving him? Well, I have to because, you know, I don't want to get to heaven and say you didn't do anything. No. Serve him because you love him. Serve here in the church because you love Jesus. That's why I serve him. I love him. He's my heart. Yeah, don't just check the box and say, yep, I love God. Seek God with love. Think about Peter denies Jesus three times. Remember, Jesus gets crucified, he gets resurrected, he comes back, he's eating with Peter. How did Jesus restore Peter? He asked him three times, do you love me? Not three times, do you feel really bad about what you did? (laughs) Tell me you feel really bad about it. You were like right over there. We made eye contact on the third one when the cock crowed. Now, repent three times and right. No, three times he asked the question, do you love me? You know I love you. No, do you love me? I love you. Yeah, feed my sheep. Do you love me? You want to see people get brought back to Jesus? Let them know how much he loves them. You know, it's just like when deliverance ministries, I've talked with Nancy one time and we were talking about deliverance ministry, and one of the things I loved at Fuller Seminary, sitting under Chuck Kraft, is, is Kraft, Dr. Kraft made the point, Jesus never blamed anyone for having a demonic spirit. He freed them. Why? Because he loves them. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Restore people with love. That's what brings me back, because I know he loves me. It's crazy good. But think about, what does Jesus have against the church in Ephesus? When you read it in Revelation, what does he say to them? To the church in Ephesus, one of the seven letters, he says, I know that you're hardworking and you make things happen, right? I mean, it's this great list of things when he says, here, this is what's good about you. You guys work hard. You make things happen. You can even tell when there's like falseness, like apostle. You, man, you got it. And then he said, but this I have against you. You've left your first love. Return to the former things before I remove your lampstand. What's the first love? Him, Jesus. What's Jesus saying to the church in Ephesus? Come back to loving me. Yeah, you can serve all day long, but that doesn't mean anything. If you don't love me, love him. That's what he had against that church. And so when I talk about this kind of a, a passionate relationship, I want to take you into Song of Solomon briefly. Verse, chapter 8, verse 6. This, listen to Jesus saying this to you as he's saying it to the church. The bridegroom, place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Would you, in your heart, before we leave this room today, say, Lord Jesus Christ, I place you as a seal over my heart, like a seal over my arm, 
I want this blazing fire, this mighty flame of love inside of me. You see, sometimes we grow into this. And I mentioned before, Bernard of Clairvaux lived thousands of years ago. I've been reading some of his writings, and he gets into the four levels of love. You first love, you love God because you need something from him. All right, God, I need to get saved, or I, I've got a big problem, and I, I need you to do it. And so you love God because he does this for you. The second level of love is what? Is that God is taking you through really difficult times. Really hard things. Whether it's physical or it's emotional or it's, it's dealing with people or whatever it is. And you've seen him deliver. You've seen him, like, like Jerry talked about, you've seen him provide. And you go, wow. He really does love me. That's level two. Level three is you love God because of who God is. You finally say, God, if I get nothing else, you don't answer another prayer. I will love you. I will love you just because of who you are. You only get about 80 or 90 years on this planet to fall in love with him. Do you love him? You know, when we sing, do you sing to him? Then sings my soul my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Now sing this to him from your heart to him. Bless his heart today. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And the reason why I'm encouraging you to do that and to sing to him, don't walk into this room and just sing songs. You sing them to him. Because in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9, it says this. God says that one look of your eyes ravishes my heart. You want to ravish God's heart? He's not just a being. He's the most loving being you can ever meet in your whole life. I still love back when John Paul Jackson was alive and he shared about having a throne room experience. And in that throne room experience, he said, you come before the living God. And he said, you just get hit with power. There's just so much power coming from God because he's all powerful. He's an all-consuming fire. And he said, you're, you sit there all the whole time, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. There's just too much power. And then he said, you get hit with waves of love. You just go, oh my goodness, he loves me. Oh my God, I'm going to die. He loves me. I'm going to die. He loves me. And he said, you go through this whole thing. And then he said that when he got back to, to planet Earth, back to himself, he said that he looked at God and said, don't do that again. That was just like too much because he's so awesome. To be in this, the presence of an all-consuming fire who loves you with all of who he is. You know what you're going to have happen on Judgment Day? You're going to look into God's eyes of love and he's going to say, I love you. Brothers and sisters, if you're feeling like you don't have passion for Jesus, I mean, just writing this sermon, I had to really question myself and go, do I love Jesus the way I'm preaching? And I thought, you know what, God, I fail you all the time. Your greatest commandment is to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and sometimes I don't. And I ask your forgiveness, living God. Lord Jesus Christ, I devote my heart to you now again. I want to love you passionately. 
Don't worry about the serving part. I love you passionately, Lord Jesus Christ. If, there's, if I could spend the rest of my life just singing to you and giving you my love, I'd do it. You are worthy of our love, Lord God. You are the awesome one. So know this, brothers and sisters, God loves you. He's always loved you because he knew that you were coming onto the planet. He knew he was going to conceive you in your mother's womb. He knit you together so he could pour his love into you. Not one of you is a mistake. You're exactly who God's called. And he loves you. And he loves you with all of his heart. So now when you sing to him, please sing your heart outs to him. Just Again, sometime during worship, each week when you come in, will you just say, Lord Jesus Christ, I love you. If he was standing here in this room right now, the most important thing we could do is to come up to him and just say, you know what, Jesus, I love you. You are in a covenant relationship with him. You have been betrothed to him. Again, next time you take communion, I think when we take communion in February, I'll remind you, this is about being betrothed to him. Our hearts are given to him. It isn't just I believe in him so I can get saved then. No, this is about being saved so I can love him. Lord Jesus Christ, you demonstrated the greatest love in that you gave yourself for us and called us to you. You're amazing, Lord God. Now, brothers and sisters, passionately give your hearts to him. I hope that is what, when people get around church, they go, wow, those people just really love Jesus. Yes, Lord, we want to be the people who love you. Praise you in Jesus' name, amen.